Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Today we turn to Galatians chapter 4, 21 to 31. Back into Galatians, back into this letter written to a group of churches by the Apostle Paul. And those churches had started well. And then the Judaizers came in and pushed them off the rails. And so they were going after a different gospel. And the Apostle Paul doesn't mince words in his letter here. And we've seen him be very, uh, use very strong language in regard to <clears throat> their direction. He's not just telling them to, you know, you might consider a few things. He's really pleading with them and going after them and urging them that what, they've, what they are doing is, is dangerous to their souls. It's not just a matter of differing opinions on, you know, um, non-essentials. This is really the gospel and... Uh, the heart of the gospel, this matter of justification. How are we made right before God? And so the whole letter is pounding on that theme, as we've seen. And now we get to the second half of chapter 4, and he, he brings in another angle. He's, he's really refuting these Judaizers throughout the letter, and this is, this is one of the stranger angles he takes. And it's perplexed interpreters and is a very difficult section. And so let's read it and you'll know what I'm talking about after we read it. <clears throat> this is Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the death, desolate <clears throat> excuse me, than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he, was born, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the fruit of the bondwoman shall be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So it's all very clear, right? Just makes immediate sense what the apostle is doing here in this passage. 
It really is a strange passage, and it, it, it's perplexed um, biblical interpreters. One, because, um, because he's, he's sort of using an allegorical interpretation of the Old Testament as he goes back. Now, you can go places like on Ligonier, and they say, well, no, it's not allegorical. It's typological, which is different. Um, and I say maybe there's a difference there. Typological would be like, you know, um, stand-ins. They're like earlier Jesuses in the, in the scriptures, right? Then, and they point towards. So typological would be like you look for patterns that are fulfilled later. Um, allegorical is sort of... Um, the reason allegorical interpretation is not um, looked upon favorably is because it really is unbounded interpretation. You can come up with anything that anything means and then begin interpreting it. And there was a whole school, um, the, uh, like the early father Origen and his whole school, they, they used allegorical interpretation. And so they would get crazy, fanciful interpretations of Scripture that were not grounded to the text and to the historical context, to the um, historical grammatical interpretation of the passage. So allegory can, can lead you down strange roads. And yet, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is engaged in allegorical interpretation. Um, we'll leave it to the apostles who were inspired in their interpretations to do the allegorical interpretation. And we'll leave it to those who follow them to do, do um, proper grammatical, historical interpretation. So, what is going on here? Okay, remember, um, he wants them again to think about the law. How do, how do we relate to the law? And I know you guys are getting tired of hearing about this, but this is what the book is about. How do we relate to the law? The, Paul had gone there and he had preached the gospel and he had told them that salvation is by... I heard grace, I heard faith. Both of those... Yeah... In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, right? That is how salvation comes. And they, they received it. They received it as if Jesus was with them preaching the gospel and they were happy about this. They had been set free from the bondage of sin and slavery that they had been bound to. The Judaizers then came along later after Paul had preached there and they said, well, not so fast. You still need to keep the law as part of building your merit, right? So yes, there is some grace in salvation, but you need the merit of law-keeping in order to make yourself justified before God. And so they came in and they said, let's go look at the Old Testament. Let's bring in some of these ceremonial laws. Let's bring in some of this um, law-keeping. And then, and then you will truly be uh, good Christians, right? Um, become a Jew first, and then you'll be a better, a more a, a full Christian um, when you add Jesus to law-keeping. 
And the Apostle Paul says, no, that's not ever how it worked, right? Remember, he's already gone back to the Old Testament, to the example of Abraham. Abraham was justified by the keeping of the law, right? No. Abraham was justified by faith, right? He believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And so Paul goes back there and is just like, it's never meant to work that way. The law was never meant to be a means of our justification. And so now he's going to go back again and look at Abraham's sons, who are? Okay, and what's the different? Yeah, it's Ishmael and Isaac, if we want to go in chronological order. Tell me about the context of their births. How do those, how do they differ? Do you remember? Okay. Okay, but what, what about the, the older one? What about Ishmael? What's that? Oh, hang on. Okay. Right, so... Um, things, things weren't happening as God had promised, and so Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands, right? And, and, and Sarah too, Sarah's in on it, and Hagar comes along, and they conceive a child, and it's Ishmael, and it's not the child of promise, right? Then, when Abraham is as good as dead, when he does not have pleasure anymore, Right when, when Sarah is ninety, then comes the child of promise, Isaac, right, through whom the covenant um, is made. And so that that's the context you have to have in your head as we come to this this section. So again, he says, "Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law?" Do you, do you listen to the law? And he's going to tell them how to hear the law through this very strange allegorical uh, example. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. We're all good with that. We know that. One by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So that's one by Hagar, one by Sarah. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Not by the promise, not by a miracle, right? For a hundred and a ninety-year-old conceive miracle, right? God had to act. There is nothing they could do at that point. The, the, um, with Ishmael, or with, with uh, Abraham and Hagar, uh, that was just according to the flesh, a natural conception. They determined to do something, they did the work, and they got the product, okay? And so that's sort of the theology of the Judaizers. And so... And the son of the free woman through the promise, okay? So God had promised them that you'll have a son. Sarah laughed, all of that, you know, she scoffs. And, and then finally, she does conceive and, and gives birth to the child of promise, Isaac. And then 24, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. Okay, and you're like, oh, right. These women are two covenants. Okay, that's where it's getting allegorical. He's making an interpretation. He's, he's uh, determining to, to use those two women 
in like a typological, allegorical sense. He's going to assign meaning to them because of their context. And he's going to make an interpretation based upon that. This is, allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Okay, so, so Hagar corresponds to what? Law, Sinai, slavery, right? Hagar corresponds to these things listed here. These women are two covenant, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So Hagar is corresponding to Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? I gave the law on Mount Sinai, right? Ten commandments and some. Okay, and so... That's Hagar. Hagar is, and then it says, and then the apostle writes, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What's significant about him saying that Mount Sinai is in Arabia? It's not the land of promise. Right? So the position of that mountain being outside the land of promise, it's not Jerusalem. It's outside the promised land. It's Arabia, right? It corresponds to slavery. It corresponds to life outside of the promise, okay? And so he's building up these, the, this contrast. So this is allegory. Go ahead, someone... I, I know, I was going to get there. All right, exactly, exactly. Completely sort of, um, I mean, think, think of when Paul wrote this letter. They had rejected Jesus Christ. Jerusalem was, was headed toward complete destruction by the Romans, right? And, and they, were, they had chosen their pharisaical religion to such an extent that they killed the Son of God, okay? And so when he says something like this, that, they, that the present Jerusalem just corresponds to Arabia, oh, he's saying something really um, incendiary, okay? This is, allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The present Jerusalem. The Jerusalem in AD, you know, 50 or whenever he wrote this letter. Okay, that present Jerusalem. That Jerusalem that's filled with slaves to the law who are seeking to be justified by the means of the law, right? It all corresponds even to the present Jerusalem. Yay! <clears throat> now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, right? She's in slavery with her children. They are under the law. They are misusing, misapplying, misreading, putting way too much emphasis on, but certainly as a means of justification, they are slaves of the law, 
And then, but, and then he says, but the Jerusalem from above, all right, not the present Jerusalem, but that Jerusalem from above, that heavenly Jerusalem, that Jerusalem where, um, where the children are free, right? She is our mother. And that's him saying, the present Jerusalem is not our mother. The heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. He's trying to reconvince the Galatians that they've, they, can't, they can't line up with the present Jerusalem, with Mount Sinai, with Hagar, with the bondwoman, with slavery. They need to line themselves with the heavenly Jerusalem that is whose children are children of promise that come by miracle of, you know, the miracle of regeneration. And so, um, what a beautiful statement, but the Jerusalem from above is free, she is our mother. That's the church. That's the church. Indeed, we could go back and, and through this whole passage, we could be um, saying that these are two different churches we're talking about here, the church of the legalist and the church of those who believe in Christ, right? It's creating that contrast between those who seek to be justified by law and those who seek to be justified by faith. And so the Jerusalem above is free, born in freedom. There is nothing man wants more than to you know, than to be free. Nothing we want more than to be free. We will, we will um, walk on our knees long distances to be free if we have to, right? We want free freedom, and we especially want freedom from that one bondage that's more terrible than any tyranny, um, earthly tyranny, and that's the the, the bondage we have to sin. Because sin will, sin and righteousness will determine your eternal fate. Right? Your eternal end, we should put it. So the Jerusalem from above, she is our mother, she cares for us, she, she, um, she doesn't condemn us, right? The, the Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, Hagar, Mount Sinai, all that does, that's like a cruel mother. That's the mother who, who always tells you, you, you've done wrong, and you're an idiot, and you're worthless, and you better get to work. Because if you don't fulfill this, 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 and this, you won't be righteous, right? But the Jerusalem that is free that mother comes along and says, you know, you are, you are mine, you are lovely, you are here, let me give you the gift of righteousness in Christ, you know. Um, it is true freedom. It is uh, being freed from the bondage of sin. And then this quote from Isaiah, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. So what is this, what is this referring to? How do we apply this? Or how would you explain this? 
Who is this barren woman it's speaking of? Yeah. Sarah? She was a barren woman, wasn't she? And the Lord needed to open her womb. And, um, and just that, that statement, the barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are, are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the children of the one who has a husband. More numerous will be the descendants of this child who came by miracle in the intervention of God than those who have an earthly husband and produce seed normally, right? And so he's just, he's expanding out this picture, making this contrast. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I like to read this as it being the, the faithful woman, right? Rather than the faithless or the, the Judaizers. I think he's really, in, um, again, pointing home the miraculous nature of the barren woman having more children than the one who has a husband. So... It's Sarah and Hagar. Hagar's got the husband. Sarah's got the descendants, right? Um, okay, so he, he's, he's building the picture, painting the picture more. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Remember, he's writing to the Galatians. He's writing to these Gentiles. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, He's saying that to Gentiles. You, brethren, are like, are like Isaac, children of promise. That's exactly what the Judaizers would be telling the Galatian Christians. If you follow our method, if you keep the law, then you are children of Isaac. You are real children of the covenant and children of Jews. And Paul says, no, no, you are by what you previously heard and I previously taught you, and you are that by faith. Your flesh has nothing to do with it. Your race has nothing to do with it. Your, your circumcision or uncircumcision has nothing to do with it. It is your faith that have made you children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. You remember that Isaac was mocked by Ishmael, right? And that led to all kinds of trouble, right? Ishmael mocked and persecuted Isaac. And so that, he says is exactly what's happening today. The Ishmaels, the Judaizers, are coming in and mocking the Isaacs. Oh, man. 
the Ishmaels are coming and mocking the Isaacs, and that is wrong because those who those Ishmaels were born according to the flesh, but you've been born according to the Spirit. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Okay? Cast out Hagar. Cast out Sinai. Cast out Arabia. Cast out bondage to the law. Cast out, um, cast out these Judaizers. Cast out the present Jerusalem. Cast all those things out. Right? Because um, they, will not be in, they will not be heirs along with the, the sons of the free woman, the sons of Sarah. They have chosen a different gospel. They can't be heirs of the free woman. They cannot. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman, he concludes. We then are children not of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. So does this begin to take some order in your brain, just how he's working here? It's, it's, a, it's a crazy passage. It's a difficult passage because we're not used to seeing these kinds of interpretation from the apostles. It's, it's kind of unique in our New Testament uh, scriptures. And so he's, he's taking an Old Testament situation and relationships, and he's sort of using them to define the present picture of what's happening with the Judaizers and the Galatian Christians, right? He's, he's looking back and he's like, oh, that reminds me. What's happening here reminds me exactly of what happened to Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. And I'm going to take that now and I'm going to help you to see that that is exactly what we're experiencing now. And the reason he had to do that is because the Judaizers were saying exactly the opposite. They were claiming that to be a good son of Isaac, you needed to be circumcised, you needed to keep the ceremonial law, and you needed to believe in Jesus. And he says, not a chance. They are actually selling you the covenant of Hagar. You know, they're, giving, they're, they're, they're selling you a false gospel. So that's my lesson. That's all I got. I just wanted to be able to explain this. <laughs> um, I, does it make sense? Are there questions? What, what questions? Yeah. Yes, yes, that's what some say in, in, in saying, well, it's not allegory because we don't like allegory, it's typological, and so they, they stand in as sort of a, you know, a, a, a pre-picture of what's happening now, but 
Let, let me read what Ligonier said on that, and, um, and then you can, you can fuss with them if you want. Um, allegorical interpretation of Scripture is to be rejected. I mean, they just come out and say it's to be rejected even though um, by its own admission, this is an allegorical interpretation of Scripture <laughs> in Scripture. Allegorical interpretation of Scripture is to be rejected because it ultimately strips the text of all meaning. Since allegories can mean something wholly different than what the context allows, there is no way to evaluate different interpretive possibilities. The passage can mean anything, and if it can mean anything, it means nothing and can be misused however one sees fit. And then they explain, Paul describes his interpretive work in Galatians 4, 21 to 31 with the same Greek word from which we get the English term allegory, but he does not embrace fanciful allegories. Instead, he uses typological interpretation, which John Calvin writes is consistent with the true and literal meaning of the original text. Typology is based on the fact that God works in recurring patterns throughout history and says that a past event or person can prefigure or serve as a type of a future person or event. In the antitype, a future person or event more fully expresses the truth of what came before. For example, consider relation of the exodus of, to the work of Jesus. God rescued, um, God's rescue of his people from Egyptian bondage typifies the greater salvation from slavery to sin and death he accomplished in Christ. The latter work is consistent with the meaning of the first. In both instances, the Almighty himself rescues a helpless people, but his work also has a fuller meaning for, for while people can return to physical slavery, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed never to be enslaved again. Typological interpretation can be problematic because too many people call what they are doing typology when they are really employing allegory. This is this. Thus, it is generally wise to stick to the typological typologies explicitly revealed in Scripture. So they're just, yeah, they're just, like a typology would go to um, the passage like the, the blood, the, uh, the blood, the water, and the, what are the three at the end of the Gospels? Um, uh, well, the, go to any scene, and, and they would say like, you know, the tip of the spear that was thrust into Jesus' side has this you know, is, um, I just think of something outlandish. The tip of the spear going into the side of Jesus is, um, is the law or something, you know, or is, is um, the Sabbath or, I mean, you just, you could just connect anything to anything, right? You use some image or some word and you connect it with anything and it's really free-flowing. Typology, on the other hand, is to say, okay, Hagar, Sarah correspond to works religion and faith religion. And I think, I think it's legitimate to say that this is typology. We just usually think of typology as person and person rather than persons and events, right? Or persons and theology. I don't know. Renton, you got anything on this? You've studied Aquinas and all those guys who did this stuff. I think, I think the reason why um, Ligonier is, 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 is
Right. Because I've heard stuff like that. That was actually a big, a big way of viewing the Bible with Bob Jones back in the 80s. They would have chapels where they would tell you that the, the water during the flood is actually symbolizing this. And hmm. The boat symbolized that. And it's like nowhere in Scripture. Yeah, you don't. Yep. Yep. It's speculative, right? Right. So, so I mean, I, I like I like them defining this as typology, but again, it is it's inspired typology. It is not this sort of, I think, approach to scripture that uh, interpreters of scripture, after the inspired interpreters of scripture, can really engage in, right? We have, the, we have the text before us, the, the meaning in the context, and that is what we have to do with, right? And we can't, um, we can't go beyond that. Now, one of the areas that I get uncomfortable with in a, in a modern example of maybe allegorical and typological interpretation is when uh, there's this movement in the church today that every text has to go directly to Christ, Right? And so you find Christ in all the Psalms and, and everything you would preach, you have to make a straight line to Christ and the, and the redemption. And I say, well, yeah, you can do that when the text allows you to do that, like Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, I mean, obviously dealing with Christ. But it becomes so crazy how they manufacture connections to Christ when I'm happy to have a sermon, honestly, that does not mention Christ that mentions God, that mentions the work of the Father, that mentions the work of the triune God, that mentions the work of the Spirit, right? But, but doesn't have this sort of, I, I've got to end this with this hokey connection to uh, Christ and the redemption or some like forced connection. Um, what, is this, what is this called, Renton? When, this is the, um, what is it? Yeah, it's... Yeah, redemptive historical preaching, and um, and there the Dutch, the you know modern Dutch um, theologians pushed this as well, but they they wrote books on like how do you get to Christ in from every text of Scripture as quickly as you can and to the message of the gospel, and I'm not I you know I just I don't I don't think Scripture. Uh, commands us to do that, right? And there is, um, and that can be really forced. Unless you're, you know, as creative as Peter Lightheart or James Jordan, and then you can connect anything to anything, you know, but I'm not, so I would not be a good practitioner of this method. Um, other questions? on the interpretation of the scriptures. Mike McHale. Um, no, I think Messianic Jews would actually believe the book of Galatians. And so they would have come full circle and come back and understood the Messiah properly and and probably left behind the pharisaical religion that still flourishes 
today. So no, I think Messianic Jews are Christians. I don't know what, there, there may be a lot of branches and there may be more fanatical ones than others, but generally speaking, from what I hear, they've, they're called Messianic Jews because they believe Jesus was the Christ. And uh, that means that they would want to come to terms with the scriptures that have been written by the ones that he sent out. Right. I mean, there's no way to come to the book of Galatians and not have Judaism as it existed in the first century torn to the ground. There's no way. You can't come out of the book a Pharisee. No, you can. You just reject what the apostle said. Mikhail. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think that's the, the intent. I think that's, or that, that is certainly a way we could view it because of the content of those covenants. Yeah. Oh, oh, like um, Pilgrim's Progress and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and things like that. Um, I, it's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're clever works of fiction that um, steal from Scripture. I mean, that's, that's what they are. They're not inspired. They're not to be authoritative in any way. Um, what's authoritative about Pilgrim's Progress is the massive quantity of Scripture he brings to bear. And he's just illuminating the Scriptures through a fictional allegory, you know? And so spiritual similitudes, I think, is the words that he uses for it. And so, yeah, th those, are, those are fine. I, I do, it is weird how we can get mixed up in our minds and then people start talking like Aslan is God and stuff, and I'm like, no, you probably shouldn't do that. It's a fictional character, and, you know, there's no way to blaspheme the name of Aslan. You just can't. He's not God. Just go ahead and blaspheme Aslan all you want. It, but 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 it's it's weird how quickly um, we can get confused just because we're our hearts are idol factories and so we like we like gods that we can control and and uh, and certainly um, there are ways that we can uh, control those idols in ways that we cannot control the one true living God and so I would just say. 
they're, they're great, they're good tools for learning, but there is this pivot point where people like over-reverence the message and it's, it's not helpful. It's really quite harmful, you know. No, not. Yeah, the new perspective on Paul, um, N.T. Wright is a guy you may have heard of, um, Anglican theologian, um, obnoxious, arrogant. Um, the new perspective on Paul says that the Reformation misread all of Paul's writings and that Pharisaism was actually a religion of grace. That's their fundamental premise. So you have to completely read Galatians differently. And what Galatians becomes is merely, and, and is merely about how to work out table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. How, how can they get along? So it's not necessarily a theological problem. It's not the, the root of justification. It's merely a fellowship problem. Um, how do we get... Um, conscientious Jews and conscientious, well, Jewish Christians and, Jew and, and Christian Gentiles to live together. And so that's, they're going to interpret everything through that lens. And so I, I, they just kind of take justification out of the picture somehow. But what they do with this passage, no clue. No idea. No idea. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, that's a new perspectives thing. It's justification by faithfulness, not justification by faith. Yeah, it, again, that, that, is, that is what the new perspectives and the federal visionists do, is they, they cloud this picture of justification by faith and works. And so uh, I sat under a new perspectives preacher when I was in seminary, and he always preached on justification by faithfulness, okay? And he, would, he was always quick to add justification by the faithfulness of Christ. But the, impl the implication all over the place was your ongoing faithfulness is what will justify you, rather than um, justification by faith, saving faith, that which at regeneration and the new birth, you have that saving faith. And, and so you, by believing on Christ and putting your trust in him, there's salvation. But that's faithfulness by, 
But justification by faithfulness is like, it feels to me like it's back-ending Judaism right back into Christianity. It's like, it's what the Judaizers were trying to do. Yeah, we're grace. Yeah, Jesus. Just these works. This ongoing faithfulness. Just add that in. And, and of course, we need to have a place for works, right? And what are works in, in the, the biblical paradigm for justification? Works are evidences of saving faith. And so if works are absent, you ain't saved, Okay, we can clearly declare that. But you don't then get saved by being faithful. You believe, and then those works spring forth from you out of your faith, right? It's, our, our works are evidence of faith. They are the outworking of the Spirit working within us, okay? And so, yeah, they're, they're a little, you know, ang- just things still get twisted up in the same way. I think the Federal Visionist movement is sort of a a modern Judaizing movement. And um, that's that's all the names that you mentioned. That's James Jordan, that's Doug Wilson, that's Steve Schlissel, that's Rich Lusk, um, some of the practitioners of that. And so, um, so we have to be careful there. It is radical to say that salvation is by faith alone because it's open to so many misinterpretations, right? That everything depends upon God giving us this gift of faith, right? And, and the original, you know, when the reformers were, were teaching what Paul wrote, the Roman Catholic Church said, you're, you're going to have chaos. You're going to have people living however they want to live and claiming that they're believers. And yeah, that has happened, right? That has happened, but that hasn't happened everywhere. And anybody who has the Spirit knows that corresponding to our faith and the Spirit is a fear of God that comes and we we do want to do good works. We want to produce fruit. We want to glorify our Father. We want to walk in righteousness. We want to live in holiness because God, our Father, is holy. So why wouldn't we want to be holy? You know? So anyway, I, I think I saw one, another hand. Any? No? All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy in, in Christ. Thank you that you have brought us into the new Jerusalem and that she is our mother. We thank you that we have been born of the free woman and that Jesus Christ died for our sins and cleansed us. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of our Savior now, that every day would be a thank offering to you of the work that we could not accomplish. And Father, may we, may we love you with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.